This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tuesday was a big night for Democrats with big wins in some unexpected places. Ohio, Virginia, and Kentucky. Scoring big wins in several races, proving the political potency of the fight for abortion and giving the party a big boost with the presidential election now just a year away. The Democrats and abortion rights advocates were celebrating their hopes lifted for next year's presidential election, despite some gloomy polls. Meanwhile, Republicans, like the presidential candidates who took to the debate stage again on Wednesday, are reeling. We've become a party of losers at the end of the day. We're a cancer in the Republican establishment. So what do the results mean for 2024? Should Republicans rethink their message on abortion? And why is it that despite a certain front-runner spending the week in court on trial for fraud, it's Joe Biden who's suffering in the polls? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. Well, I can really only speak to what's happened this year and at this point. And this year, we've had a great year. Simon Rosenberg is a Democratic strategist and founder of the New Democrat Network, a progressive think tank based in Washington, D.C. He saw his reputation soar this time 12 months ago when he was vindicated, having predicted against the conventional wisdom that Democrats would do well in last year's midterm elections. The political landscape really shifted after the Dobbs decision uh, last year in the summer of 2022. And that's Tara Setmayer, the political commentator who once worked as a communications director for a Republican congressman on Capitol Hill. So I was watching in places, I live in the state of Virginia, which is a really consequential state in uh, presidential politics. It's become a bellwether state now. Watching the way that the ads were run, the way that they ran those races, it was all about women's rights and extremism on abortion against the Republicans. And that messaging to me seemed to make sense because it was real. It woke a lot of voters up, not just women voters, who felt that their daughters shouldn't have less rights than their grandmothers did but also male voters as well, looking at the impact of individual freedom and the government coming in and making decisions for women's health care. It didn't sit right with a lot of folks, particularly in suburban areas. It was consistent with what I've been watching, the trend line since, since Dobbs was overturned. It shows that that MAGA extremism is a losing issue continuously for Republicans. So let, let's get into then the, the, the detail of some of these and starting 
with Virginia, possibly the biggest upset of the night. I mean, in Virginia, all 140 state legislative seats were up for grabs and Democrats managed to secure control of both houses, uh, both chambers uh, at state level, including flipping the House, which had been held by Republicans before then. Simon, how do you read the results there, very specifically in Virginia, whether that is to be understood as a win for abortion rights and abortion rights activists or a win for Democrats? Well, both. Glenn Youngkin, the current governor, tried to create what the Republicans are calling a compromise position on abortion. Promising if Republicans won the state legislature, they'd pass what he called reasonable restrictions, 15-week abortion ban with exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. But it backfired. Rather than a total ban, this idea of a 15-week ban. And so he was very explicit that he believed that he was trying out this sort of new position for the Republican Party And if it worked, that they were going to be able to use it nationally next year in elections across the country. And so this was the stakes in this were very high. It's one of the reasons, as Tara mentioned, that there was so much intensity around this issue, because the Republicans were advertising that they were using this as a test for a new moderate position. And that failed. It's a very significant outcome in our politics, because the Republicans have nowhere to hide. I mean, they've essentially you know, taken a position that has 25, 30% support in the country that is a number one voting issue for tens and tens of millions of people. And they've taken an extraordinarily extreme position on something and there's no way out of it. It's like an enormous anchor on their ankle dragging them down. They have paid a terrible price. They're going to continue to pay a terrible price. It's a big problem for them. Uh, so Tara, just pick pick up on that because the, uh, as Uh, Simon explains this was in a way seen as a kind of test run and the thought was that if it worked and Virginia did uh, go Republican in these off-year elections well then a lot of people saying you'd have seen Republicans all around the country making this their position within you know 12 hours that the opposite has happened the position was rejected what message on abortion will Republicans push now that a conservative dominated Supreme Court has made this decision it's overturned Roe v Wade where do Republicans go as they have to message this issue into 2024 well as Simon said this is a mess for Republicans Um, last summer Republican strategists recognized that this was a five-alarm fire potentially for them. And the more extreme right-wing, the the culture warrior, MAGA-wing of the Republican Party has dominated the discussions and the, the political landscape for them for so many years now because of Donald Trump, that it became more obvious that outside of extremely red districts, that this message of overturning abortion rights and having a, a national ban on abortion would not fly in other districts. So yeah, it was a test run here in Virginia. And like as I said, it's a bellwether state because of the demographics in, in Virginia, and it failed miserably. And before we leave Virginia, just the point about the messenger, uh, Glenn Youngkin, there were people hoping he might be the late entrant into the race that could sweep away uh, the others and potentially knock out Donald Trump. There were some donors very, very keen on Glenn Youngkin. Has the Youngkin boom immediately dissipated now in the light of these results? 
The boom you heard was the explosion of De- Glenn Youngkin's presidential aspirations. <laughs> they ended immediately. As soon as the Virginia State House went blue, went Democrat, that was the end of that. And um, frankly, I-, I did not share that level of excitement or optimism for Glenn Youngkin uh, swooping into the race, somehow upsetting the apple cart and-, and vanquishing Donald Trump. I mean, we have to be honest here. Glenn Youngkin is not that type of candidate. He's very milk toast very much in the in the vein of the old school Republican that the party has rejected. We are a state that is very comfortable working together, working across party lines in order to get things done. So I think it was fallacy uh, and folly by many of these donors who were wish casting that someone would come in and, and take out Trump. And Glenn Youngkin never struck me as the guy who could possibly do that despite his own personal wealth. So let's move um, away from Virginia and move both north and west to Ohio. In Ohio, voters enshrining a right to abortion access in the state's constitution. It's the seventh straight victory for abortion rights in a state referendum since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. So issue one, as it was called, and it passed with more than 57% of the vote. Ohio is a state that has gone solidly Republican for you know, multiple election cycles, most of this century. Uh, Simon, how are Democrats looking at that now? Because Ohio has been a hard state for Democrats to crack. They've seen a position supported by Democrats in big numbers win a thumping majority there. Are they now just thinking, okay, this is uh, something we can just see how it goes state by state? Or is there is there the beginnings, the outlines almost of a national political strategy in what's happened in Ohio? There's no question now that Democrats are going to try to put similar ballot initiatives in as many states as we possibly can in 2024. We are likely to see one in Florida and another in Arizona, some of the most critical states in the country, with great optimism that they'll pass. I mean, if they can pass in Ohio, if they can pass in Kansas, they're going to, you know, which are very Republican states and more battleground states, we have high expectations. But the second thing it does, and this is relevant for the Ohio Senate race, because our Senate may be decided just by a single race here or there next year, is that it galvanizes, it creates volunteers and people working and creates energy and passion among supporters, which then can be used in other elections. It sort of revitalized the Democratic Party. And then finally, they just elevated up to be speaker a man named Mike Johnson, who's now the national leader of the Republican Party in the House, he is for a national ban with no exceptions. That pulls at about 10 to 15 percent. And he will be on the national ballot next year. His positions, regardless of who the Republican nominee is, we're going to be able to say that if you elect Republicans, you get a national ban with no exceptions. It's going to be very, very difficult for the Republicans to manage and mitigate and defuse you know, where they've gone on this issue in recent years. They've paid a terrible price and they're likely to pay another terrible price in 2024. And Tara, I mean, what we're hearing there does suggest this is a national winning 
issue for Democrats now. And it's quite noticeable that the one, well, not one, but one of the few bits of bad news for Democrats on the night was uh, a, the candidate for governor in Mississippi, Brandon Presley. I mean, he was never fancied particularly anyway, but he underperformed Democrats and his own personal position was uh, to be as an opponent of uh, abortion rights. And so Democrats who support abortion rights did well. Those who oppose them did badly. Donald Trump is one of the few candidates on the Republican side who has kept some distance from this issue. And I'm just wondering if he is the nominee in 2024, in a way, if the strategy Simon has just sketched out in which Democrats paint the Republicans as the party of a national abortion ban, maybe that doesn't quite work for, for Democrats if Donald Trump is the nominee. Well, you've seen already that Donald Trump is testing out a more moderate position on abortion because he has people running his campaign now that are a lot more experienced. So they've already started testing that. They they actually went after Ron DeSantis, the, the governor of Florida, who many people thought would have been the guy to take out Trump. And his campaign has, has failed miserably as well. And he signed a, a six-week abortion ban, a very restrictive, one of the most restrictive in the country thinking that that would help him in the primary, and it hasn't. Now, where that changes is that Donald Trump himself is such an incredibly polarizing and toxic brand. The abortion issue is a mobilizing issue to get people to the polls. Donald Trump will also be a motivating factor to get folks to the polls, either for or against him. We all know this. And as it becomes more clear that he is, in fact, the nominee. I mean, it's it's been clear to many of us who've been watching this that he will be the nominee. It's going to be very difficult for them to try to distance themselves from the more extreme Republicans on that issue because they're going to be running around the country still talking about national abortion bans, which is not something in step with the average American for the most part. And so I suppose there are voters who, if they're not repelled by the Republicans' position on abortion, will be repelled by Donald Trump. And so Indeed. one way or another, it doesn't it doesn't work for them. Let's move on to Kentucky, uh, a Republican state solidly for uh, in recent memory, voted huge numbers for Donald Trump in 2020. And nevertheless, a Democrat, the incumbent governor, Andy Bashir, got re-elected. In deep red Kentucky, Trump-backed candidate Republican Daniel Cameron tried to take down Democratic Governor Andy Bashir by linking him to Biden. But it didn't work. Thank you, Kentucky! There's obviously an abortion aspect to that too. He ran on that issue. But I want to ask you, Simon, just about the fact that he did distance himself from Joe Biden. He had this line, it's about what's going on in our houses, not what's going on in the White House. I mean, it's hard to read an endorsement of Joe Biden specifically, personally, into these results rather than just a, a position on the issues we've been talking about, Simon. I, I think the significance of the Kentucky victory is it's a reminder of how strong the next Democratic Party is. That when you look at him and Kamala Harris and Gavin Newsom and Josh Shapiro and Gretchen Whitmer and Cory Booker, you know, whatever the list is that you have of the next generation of Democrats, this is the strongest group of, of next generation leaders that either party has had in a very long time, potentially, and certainly in my lifetime in politics, compared to the clown show that we've seen on the Republican side in their presidential primaries. And so, you know, not only do Democrats, I think, have an advantage heading into 2024, but structurally, the Republicans have 
two big issues that are going to be dragging them down for a long time and make them a much weaker party in a party that hasn't has only won the popular vote once since 1988. So they're already in a weakened position. One is abortion, as we discussed. The other one is that the party of Lincoln and Reagan will now forever be the party that tried to end American democracy. And that is something that is going to be part of their brand for years to come. And so I think the real significance of Andy Bashir is that it's a reminder that the Democratic Party is not just strong now, but if you project out over the next decade, there's a real chance for us to continue to sort of dominate American politics through both issues and the strength of our political leaders and the weakness of what's happened on the Republican side. There's tremendous asymmetry now. Understood. But people will hear that list of names and they'll be saying, shouldn't you allow the next generation to go now rather yeah. than waiting for this next decade, especially because... I'm going to let Tara, I'm going to let Tara take that one. Well, it's, it's, no, but, 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 especially because that there was this poll last weekend that showed Joe Biden trailing Donald Trump in five of the six key battleground states. I mean, you know, the, the outlook, as you've sketched it, is so healthy for Democrats. And yet the one big cloud is over Joe Biden. I think it's very much about his age. Shouldn't Aren't you one, going to be one of those Democratic voices saying, pass the baton to the new generation now? Joe Biden is our candidate. He's the best person to run for president on our side. He's been a, a good president. The country's better off. He's going to have a very strong argument to make for re-election. And by the way, on that New York Times poll, there have already been two polls this week showing Biden up by two points and four points in the national, very high quality, you know, credible national polls. We learned last time, Jonathan, when we talked a year ago, we can't let a single poll dictate our understanding of the election. It's a close competitive election right now. That's the way I see it. But I think as we've been discussing, if you project out over the next year, you know, we're going to be able to make a strong case for re-election. The Democratic Party keeps winning elections all across the country. And they're full of MAGA and Trump, and they're going to be a mess. And it's going to be very hard to understand how to sell that messy polit that extremist politics to a country that's been rejecting it in election after election after election. So we are quietly confident and, and recognizing, though, that we have a lot of work to do and we can't take anything for granted. Tara, Simon referred to it as a clown show. We did see another episode this week with the candidates' debate on Wednesday night, the third of those debates. Again, Donald Trump not there. It is now a contest for the silver medal to be in second place behind Donald Trump. What's your read of, of how the debate went and who won? Well, it was always a contest for second place. It was, it's been the greatest reality competition for second place from day one. So I'm not surprised by this. If you look at the way Republicans, the Republican challengers have been running their campaigns, they've been afraid to go after Donald Trump on very legitimate issues here. The clown show is an apt description. If you look at the behavior, the type of insults. Well, I, I, I want to laugh at why Nikki Haley didn't answer your question, which is about looking at families in the eye. In the last debate, she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my daughter out of your voice. You have this um, uh, you know, con artist type in, in Vivek Ramaswamy, who's a know-nothing who goes out there and just hurls insults at people and and puts out one-liners. He takes extreme positions calling Ukraine's President Zelensky a Nazi. I mean, it's really quite alarming as someone who spent 27 years in, in the Republican Party and believed in Ronald Reagan's foreign policy approach to things. I it, It's just shocking to me 
how far the Republican Party has fallen. So, yeah, I, I mean, who won the debate? I, I would say Nikki Haley won the debate if I had to choose. She was prepared. She was measured. And uh, she handled herself very well with all of the incoming from all sides. And I think that people uh, respected that performance by her. But once again, she's one of the one of the Republicans who said she would pardon Donald Trump if he were convicted. And uh, that, to me, is disqualifying. Well, let's um, stay with the subject of Donald Trump for the question that you both know we always like to ask on the podcast, which is a what else question, something else going on, always uh, in this case related, because Donald Trump took the stand on Monday to present his defence or his side of the argument in a $250 million civil fraud trial that could end his business career in New York State. Obviously, he says uh, the allegations against him are unfounded. It was tense from the start, sitting right next to Judge Arthur and Gorin Trump complaining he called me a fraud and he didn't know anything about me. The judge admonishing the former president, please just answer the question, no speeches. Trump did not comply. Calm but combative while hunched in the witness chair, Trump at one point grumbling, I'm sure the judge will rule against me because he always rules against me. Judge Ngoran exasperated, calling Trump's answers non-responsive and repetitive. At one point, yelling to Trump's attorney, can you control your client? This is not a political rally. This is a courtroom. I uh, Simon, you've, uh, I don't know whether you, how much, how closely you've been paying attention to the trial, but a lot of interest this week in the notion of somebody, anybody, in this case, a civil court judge, telling Trump to be quiet. I mean, he is not used <laughs> to that. The judge is even threatening to have him removed from court. But from what you're seeing, um, what do you make of it? Well, and the other thing that happened in the last week is that all three of his kids had to testify in public and that there's a sense that now they're in significant jeopardy as well, in addition to him in this in this fraud. Listen, the significance of this is that over the next 12 months, it is possible that Donald Trump could be found guilty of one of the largest financial frauds in recent American history. He'll be found guilty of what may be the largest security breach in the history of the United States and certainly something that is threatening our Western alliances. And he'll be guilty of leading a party-wide insurrection to overturn an American election and end American democracy. All of that is possible in the next few months. And it's why I'm so optimistic about 2024 is that I just don't think the country is going to go for that. This is just too much this is a sign of, of the collapse of one of our two political parties in America. And so having the collapse of one of our two political parties in the, in the most powerful country in the world is a significant event. And I think you're seeing that play out. But I, I do think that this is significant. The accountability is coming to Donald Trump. He's obviously not handling it very well. His family's not handling it very well. But here we are. And of course, Donald Trump would deny all those charges and say he is not guilty of any one of them. But Tara, we, we heard about the two sons of Donald Trump, but Ivanka Trump and her sudden amnesia problems. She acknowledged working to secure loans guaranteed by her father's wealth for Trump properties like the Doral Golf Club in Miami. But she says she couldn't remember the details at one point saying, I believe it was the ninth month of pregnancy of my oldest daughter. They, they won't have helped his case much either, I wouldn't have thought. What do you think? She's desperately, desperately trying to get back her reputation and her stature as a socialite in the swanky circle she used to run in that have made her pretty much a pariah because of her involvement with her father's presidency. 
And the timing of this couldn't have been worse for her. She was starting to emerge once again in those circles, hanging out with Kim Kardashian and um, trying to reinvent herself. And then here she's put back in the spotlight and people are reminded why they shunned her in the first place. So um, will this make a difference? Well, I mean, this case is really about the penalty phase. The judge has already determined that Donald Trump's company has committed fraud. It's a matter of what that penalty is going to be. I think people often forget this because it seems like it's a normal trial, but this is the penalty phase of the trial. And it could be a the death penalty financially for Donald Trump's company in New York, which would be significant. We all know his identity, his personal identity is all around his wealth and the facade that he is this successful businessman. This is something that's very personal to him. And you begin to see him unravel a bit more around this when it's so close to him personally. He's unable to accept accountability for anything. And uh, this has been going on for decades. So it is nice to see that our court system, that our judicial system is working the way it should for the most part in this case and uh, insulated so far from, from Trump's abilities to try to tear it down. Just one of the many plot lines in the story of 2024, which we will be following uh, as it unfolds here on the podcast. Tara Setmeyer and Simon Rosebo, thank you both for joining me on Politics Weekly America. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jonathan. And that's all from me for this week. Of course, New York has been gripped by another trial in recent weeks, that of the fallen founder of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried. To find out his fate after a jury found him guilty of fraud last week, do listen back to Tuesday's episode of our sister podcast, Today in Focus. And before I go, I wonder if I can ask you all a favour. If you have a moment and you do enjoy listening to this podcast, it would be extremely helpful if you could leave us a review on Apple or wherever you listen. We would be eternally grateful. But for now, it's goodbye. The producers were Yolene Goffin and Danielle Stevens, and the executive producer this week was Max Sanderson. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.